0: already great back again this time we're probably going to conclude uh Gilles Deleuze's cinema 2 the time image um And if you're tuning into this one without looking at the other ones or listening to the other ones, please go back and listen to at least part one and two of this one. Uh, And to get a real full understanding, jump back to uh, Cinema One, The Movement Image, which we've covered. That is me and Christina, who's been extremely helpful in helping me understand this. Uh, And Christina, who are you?
1: So, I'm Christina L. Burke, I'm a PhD candidate at the Center for Study in Theory and Criticism at Western University, I do screenwriting, I do all kinds of creative writing, I'm currently working on a dissertation of some kind, uh, and I uh, won an award for my cinema writings from the Film Studies Association of Canada for an essay on a concept I made up called Cineroticism uh so yeah i'm very familiar with film stuff and cinema too is if you listen to the previous episodes i called it my favorite book uh next to william faulkner's light in august so yeah i feel like this book speaks to me in a certain way um i may be the one person equipped to understand
0: all of it uh, yeah because i'm not so <laughs> so yeah all right great uh and we're gonna start here from chapter seven thought and cinema yeah where i got my new twitter handle um right wh- what is it again you didn't plug it oh
1: yeah sorry it's uh thought and cinema uh t h o t and cinema um so yeah little little pun there um okay this is this is the big chapter i feel <laughs> right. like this is the this is the uh to borrow a phrase from pro wrestling the granddaddy of them all this is this is it this is where we are now going to talk about how films think who is it that does the thinking when we watch a film where their power or lack thereof comes from and what it's for Um, who the great contemporary directors are. It's all going to come from thinking about this. And he's gone over some of them already, but they'll be recapitulated. So the important first concept is, if you remember when we were talking about Cinema One, I spoke about the kind of vagueness of Deleuze's cinema subject. That is to say, who the viewer is in Deleuze's thought. Okay. And he gives us some sort of ideas. He talks about in Cinema 1 the brain as interval. Here he talks about sort of um, time as thought and the pure past and sort of learning to describe what we're being shown. But the true subject is what he begins to articulate in this chapter. The subject of cinema for Deleuze, taking the concept from a very obscure French art historian named Jean Louis Schaeffer's book on cinema, is the spiritual automaton. And so what is a spiritual
0: automaton? Christina, please let us know.
1: It is a automatic response that exists within us that the cinema attempts to call upon it is almost a dualism in the sense that like descartes will make a distinction between the soul and the body while the cinema will produce in us a spiritual automaton outside of our brains who responds to its powers And this is very strange and science fictional and a bizarre approach to subjectivity to say cinema creates these subjects within us or summons them or makes them known. So how does it do this? How do we awaken the spiritual automaton? And why is it an automaton? Like, why isn't it? Why is it this sort of generic subject and not something fuller? And so in the first chapter of chapter seven, he talks about the spiritual automaton in relation to the movement image and how it is summoned by this idea of a shock. And if you've read Benjamin uh, or you've read Adorno, this, the idea of the shock is very key to their ideas of modern art, that there is something in film, according to Benjamin, that snaps us out of our ordinary perception and calls upon us to look at the world in a different way. And so this is the shock that awakens the spiritual automaton, that awakens this thinker in us. And Deleuze is somewhat sort of critical here of, like, Benjamin and uh, Bella Balazs and other early cinema theorists for what they thought this shock could do because now we look back and go it wasn't that transformative it maybe changed their perception a little bit but it didn't alter the course of history it didn't liberate us the shock um nevertheless eisenstein was the one to really put this into theoretical practice like his ideas of the dialectics of cinema this spiral of man and nature over or man overcoming and emerging out of nature and conflict with nature this is how he saw film as summoning you to think was with these moments of collision and these moments of shock that were made up of intellectual components and this is also where we get the first idea of an intellectual cinema a cinema that summons you to think through its associations And so after this sort of Eisenstein, we move into Hitchcock, and Hitchcock is when things sort of start breaking down. The shock goes away, and instead of shock, we have suspense. And so it's no longer a jolt that cinema provides, but kind of a tension. And this tension sort of inaugurates an era of reflection, but not, not the reflection that will happen in the time image. It's still it's still subordinated to movement, to action. Suspense pays off. We don't just linger in it indefinitely. If we did, then it would become a time image. So that's where the spiritual automaton emerges in the movement image, and it's tied to movement, and it's active. It's shocked in emotion. It's brought to life. And so in the next section, he turns to an old de favorite for readers of the logic of sense though he mentions him elsewhere antonin artaud and the idea that in the powerlessness of thought the failure of thought what thought cannot think there is a greater power and so this is what the time image is going to do for us it asks us to surrender our ability to act in order so that we may go further and find new ways of looking at things. And so we realize that it is only by letting go of our capacity to act that we encounter something beyond us. And so how do we let go rationally you don't (laughs) it can't be something rational this is the point of his reference to Kierkegaard and the absurd that you can't think your way to the renewal of thought you can't think your way into um, faith and truth you have to just believe and so what cinema does What this new cinema does is return a form of belief to this automaton figure that what it asks us to do and awaken in ourselves is the ability to let go and say, by not acting, by not thinking according to these sensory motor reflexes, we will find something more powerful. And so the power of cinema becomes the power to believe in the world. And so what is this, what, are, what is it that we believe in? Because it's not just a blind faith. It is a belief in our power to endlessly create the world. The world is always an invention, and it is always made by giving over to the powers that thought itself hasn't realized yet. And so when Deleuze asks us to believe in this world, what he's asking us to believe in is our power to create, and our creativity.
0: And this is the Deleuze I know. Yeah. You know, A Thousand Plateaus... Anti-Edipist, that um, the delus of possibility, mm-hmm. you know, deterritorialization in the good sense, not the capitalist sense. Like this is where it started to make sense to me. Um, and there's this little, there's this quote where he says that cinema, the cinema must film, not the world, but belief in this world, our only link. The nature of the cinematographer, sorry. The nature of the cinematographic illusion has often been considered. Restoring our belief in the world, this is the power of modern cinema. Which is where I think captures the essence of this.
1: Yes, and speaking of essence, you know, now, now we're here. Where Deleuze kept teasing us with that Nietzsche quote that um the essence of something doesn't reveal itself at the beginning but in the middle Mm -hmm. of its lifetime so i think that's another reason he takes the second world war as a breaking point it is by the position of 1983 or 1985 or whenever he started writing these books the middle of the history of cinema literally obviously now that's different time has gone on we would put the line in a different place but when he was writing that was the middle um, and so the, we need to become, um, speaking of a thousand plateaus, there, there is sort of an element of becoming imperceptible here. There, the Schafer's idea of the ordinary man of cinema is very much a man without qualities who is in the world but not a part of it and sees it from this outside position and so that's going to get us into the third section where he starts explicitly using the phrase the thought of the outside which he takes from Foucault's writings on Blanchot I don't remember if Blanchot ever explicitly uses the term thought of the outside But he talks about the outside and the absolutely outside. Um, It's also in this third section that he's going to talk about the distinction between problems and theorems. So theorems are prescriptive. They are sensory motor. They give us answers. Problems are general. We live in problems. We do not find an answer to them. They create possibilities problems here seem very much to me to be like ideas in difference and repetition where the idea is sort of a pure multiplicity and it's the same with the problem the problem is a space of multiplicity where there are no sort of definitive answers and he really gets into this idea of um the whole is the outside so in Cinema One, we were constantly hitting the phrase, the whole is the open. Yeah. So that the whole referred to a totality of parts that were constantly changing and influencing one another, but they all existed together. Whereas now we have a whole where what it is influenced is what is outside of it, alien to it. What makes it is not what's within it, but what is outside it. So this is the unthought in thought, or the empower of thought. Its ability to say, what is not a part of me, I can accept it and bring it in and create something new. So now the whole produces newness. And one of the ways this outside is touched upon is through his idea of the interstice. And I'm going to be a little, uh, I'm going to toot my own horn. My entire MA thesis is about the idea of the interstice and how it relates to the work of Jean-Luc Godard. And so if you're interested, I'd recommend looking up Tracing the Interstice, uh, Godard, Deleuze, in the Future of Cinema. I could probably put a link for it if, um... It has my uh, dead name on it, which I couldn't get changed, which is really unfortunate. Really? Yeah. Hmm. Um, Nonetheless, I think uh, if you're interested just in the interstice as a concept and what it means, uh, I would recommend that. Um, And so he brings up Ghadar here as the sort of emblematic thinker of the interstice, uh, because Godard famously began to incorporate black frames into his work, specifically in the 1970s. And so these were literally interstitial frames, interruptions, things of that nature. So um, to answer a question from, I think it was the previous episode, who was the Deleuze of cinema? It's right. Godard. Godard. Deleuze sees him and Godard is engaged in a very similar thing, especially when he talks about Godard's use of categories and how not only are the genres Godard slides between categories, but colors become categories, characters become categories, music becomes a category. It's always this shifting between all these different types of things and these endless reference that are pushed to their limit and collapsed and this is what Deleuze does it's the same thing like with with these books themselves he is taking all these films and pushing the idea of what cinema is to its limits wherever he can with his examples and he's trying to exhaust them and be like these are the concepts that come from them so for Deleuze De, or Deleuze's mere image in cinema as he sees it is Godard. Of course when someone asks Godard about Deleuze he's going to say I don't know structuralists write badly. <laughs> 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 <laughs>
0: um
1: D- Godard is not the biggest fan of Deleuze. Sure. Uh, he doesn't he he just I think Godard is much as his recent films testify, he does believe in a language of the image, which Deleuze disavows constantly throughout this book. Mm-hmm. And for me, it's like watching mommy and daddy fight. And it's like, <laughs> I love you both, shut up. Which one's daddy? Godar is always daddy. <laughs> um, and yeah, so... Godar sort of is emblematic of a contemporary intellectual cinema and i think this is still true today when people want to make fun of artsy films like what they're likely referencing if it's not bergman it's it's gadar like that is our idea of pretension is like french people smoking a lot of cuts not understanding what's going on like (laughs) Um, yeah, I think Godard is still our model for intellectual cinema, and when he dies, maybe intellectual cinema will die with him. Who's to say? <laughs> mm-hmm. um, God, I'm going to be a mess when that happens.
0: <laughs> what Just... were What were some of his films?
1: Um, so his '60s films are very famous: Breathless, um, uh, A Woman Is a Woman, uh, Viva Savi. Uh, Alphaville. Uh, weekend uh, masculine feminine um these these are all tremendous films i can't recommend enough uh, Piro lefou is very crucial to deliz's discussion um and it is really a turning point in godard's early oeuvre and then in the 70s he made um political films as part of the ziga ziga Vertov group with uh, jean-pierre gorin And then he um, started making films in Switzerland with his uh, partner, uh, Anne-Marie Mieville. And then uh, he returned to France in the 80s, made some um, feature films that were very different from his 60s films, because he really undergoes a shift from using sort of like pop culture references and kind of like... A pop art aesthetic to switching to more like uh, classical references and, um, like more canon sort of aesthetics. And so people were very much like, "Oh, this is too too smart for me now." Those older films were fun. Why don't you make why don't you make movies like the old fun ones? And he just he's always going to do his own thing. And he's still making movies in Switzerland. Um. Yeah, and he's he's still doing crazy interviews with Kai de Cinema where he talks about langage and uh doesn't like traditional film reviews cuz they don't show you what happens between the images and Jesus <laughs> uh guitar <Gadar> is guitar <laughs> he is
0: you, uh, there's something to love about him cuz <laughs> you're you're drawn to him yeah uh i really am
1: uh, like a moth to a flame Okay, so, chapter 8.
0: Chapter 8, Cinema Body and Brain Thought.
1: Yeah. Okay, so. So, we now, we now know where our power for thinking is coming from. It's coming from our uh, what we don't think about, what we cannot think. So, that means if we're going to think with the body, we are thinking with the body not in terms of what we can order it to do but what it can become, the postures it can take on, the jest is the term he borrows from Brecht, a particular gesture, a tableau, a posture. Um, Dilliz has this really great essay on Beckett uh, in Essays Critical and Clinical. I think it's The Exhausted or something like that where he, no idea... He talks about these postures of fatigue and Beckett. And so these are also jests in the way that he talks about in cinema. And so he he has the quote from Spinoza, we don't even know what a body can do. And it's because we tie it into these sensory motor mechanisms. So what does the body become when it's sort of set loose to think for itself Mm -hmm. in a way? And so he talks about... um, Uh, john cassavetti is an american director who did a lot of uh, improvisation in making his films um he was very interested in postures particularly that women take up his close collaborator and long-term partner gina rowlands was a huge part of that she really shapes the cassavetti's oeuvre but not her exclusively he made other films without her um similar principles um, because it's improvised because it's so theatrical but also because the stories are not they're not about what the characters want they're about the situations they find themselves in they take up postures that are unfamiliar or strange um and of course he talks about new wave directors and godar is one of them godar gets placed with the cinema of the body which i would Maybe be like, Godard's everything. Okay, body, <laughs> brain, like... But yes, in the early Godard films, and even in, like, slow motion, which Deleuze talks about, there is very much a sense of how are bodies organized? How are they being organized? What forces get to organize them? How do they resist? Um, and then, finally, he talks a lot about Philippe Guerrel, who is... A very obscure figure. He started off making silent films in the 1960s as part of a film collective post-1968 called the Zanzibar Group, who were um, basically radical experimental filmmakers in their teens and early 20s who were trying to sort of like what is a new cinema what can we make with the little things we have and so Gorel's early works are these very strange films like la revelateur which is about a child walking down a hallway and there's images of him with his family and there's like familial conflict and de talks about like the joseph mary and the child imagery and it's a very strange cinema, but it's a cinema that comes out of the New Wave. I would say it's post-New Wave. Um, but it is so fascinated by these gestures because it is silent, because I'm not sure if they didn't have the budget to shoot and sound, or they just didn't want to. Um, he has this film called The High Solitudes, or Les Hautes Solitudes, and it is on the one hand a like silent documentary about gene seberg this american actress who made her career in france after starring in Godard's breathless um and you can't tell if it's the most intrusive thing in the world because you just see her in these moments of total weakness and panic and mania but it's so but you can always tell that like This is being crafted. This is being captured. Is she acting? Is she not? Like, these gestures, these postures, like... Did Gorel capture her at her most vulnerable and took advantage of her wanting to stay relevant? Or was it that she welcomed him in and gave him this performance? Like, we never know. We're constantly moving between these things, and as a result, she creates these movements and these gestures and characters that are so strange and they serve no purpose whatsoever the film just captures her as she is or as she wants to appear it's not clear so I can see why Gorel is so important to this idea even though in terms of like English language film reception nobody knows who he is who wants to watch silent films made in the late 60s and early 70s like yeah okay so the next (laughs) section give me a brain then (laughs) um so this is a new idea of thinking the brain um and he talks about this we our classic idea of the brain is that like it's a thinking thing it's directed it's intentional etc and Deleuze talks about how well we have a new idea of the brain this new brain is sort of a-centered it's actually all these different networks connecting together it's not like an organized totality it's actually all these disparate sort of um sensation shocks uh, membranes all together and it is like a topological space it's probabilistic but it's not rational it can short circuit it can it can do things that we didn't think it could do or it can come to conclusions that don't just follow from the obvious information it's given and so the two filmmakers he uses are stanley kubrick um who was probably welcome for you because you're like, I've seen Kubrick movies. I
0: have seen Kubrick movies. I like Kubrick a lot. <laughs> yeah.
1: And did you recognize Kubrick and what he was saying? No or idea. just like
0: no? Not a clue. He's talking yeah. about He's, he doesn't even name Hal. He's like the the super the big the big <laughs> computer. <laughs> oh yeah you definitely forgot. You just <laughs> forgot the name of it. It's like Yeah. But yeah no I I like Kubrick so
1: Yeah, so this we see this in Kubrick and uh, Renee. Um, Renee especially is the example he really goes in on of these thinking spaces where different possibilities are taken into consideration. Um, I'm trying to think of. So in Renee's film, My American Uncle, It starts off with an explanation by this, I think he's like a neuroscientist, but he's talking about rats and how rats are determined by these courses of like patterns in their brain. And then the story is actually about these three people and it compares them to the rats and like the way they respond to things. So it's very much like this kind of funny, um, but also like sort of film about like probabilities and chance and time and how things work out and what someone could be if like one thing went just a little bit differently. And so this kind of way of framing things for Deleuze is very much like this is, this is the contemporary idea of the brain. It's not something complete in itself. It has Mm -hmm. to take in all these possibilities and is shaped by what is outside it. Um, different from the body which is you know about posture the brain is about probability i think so in the last section he starts talking about um sort of third world cinema and minor languages i don't know if you've read the kafka book
0: you no, know wrote no mm-hmm. neither
1: have i Um, but that's where they come up with the idea of sort of the minor and minor languages you get a bit of it in A Thousand Plateaus yeah I think it's it's in there as well and sort of um, what these films do is they give the power of the speech act to these um, repressed peoples and they give voices to languages and people of those languages who are excluded from dominant discourses and the film i kept thinking of while reading this section wasn't actually one that he mentioned because he couldn't have but it's one i watched recently and that's the taiwanese director ho Shen's city of sadness i
0: haven't seen it
1: so city of sadness takes place immediately after the second world war and during um the Communist Revolution in China where the uh, Chinese government under Chiang Kai-shek retreats to Taiwan and sort of occupies uh, Taiwan. And so Taiwan falls under martial law. And throughout the film, there is this sense that the Taiwanese people who existed before occupation by the Chinese who were occupied by the Japanese and who also speak their own languages um, are we see a history kind of of their erasure but also of their resistance the film itself is an act of resistance by depicting this event so there are all these competing languages in the film there's Japanese, there's Chinese and then there's Taiwanese and so by displaying this sort of historical silencing Ho brings life to Taiwanese culture and its place as a minor culture between two sort of imperial powers in Japan and China Um, and I think it's very similar to the way Deleuze and Guattari talk about not only Kafka but also Beckett as an Irish writer or Joyce sort of trying to respond between English in French and trying to find a place there for himself out of those languages so I think City of Sadness is a really interesting example but the films Deleuze talks about too the African films of um, specifically the Senegalese films of Ousmane Sembin um, the Brazilian films of Glauber Rocha these films also do these also do these things in different ways like Ben's films tend to be comedies Rocha made Oh, they're like half western half musicals they're uh, they're astounding to look at and it's like why aren't these films like restored and available like this is an incredible example of Brazilian cinema like I don't but anyway it's beside the point and he also talks about Perrault and the Quebecois again mm-hmm. here so speaking of speaking <laughs> chapter 9
0: chapter 9 is the going... components of the image Yeah. This is going to be all about talking. I'm glad I've been able to participate by saying <laughs> out the chapter titles. <laughs> to reiterate, uh, I'm a noob, but it's ironic because my undergrad was technically in film. Or at least that was a part of it. <laughs> yeah, I... Hence my watching Bicycle Thieves Eight and a Half, <laughs> Yeah, cabinet of Dr. Caligari and, you know, they Hitchcock and Wells
1: yeah. yeah my undergrad was uh definitely film based as well but I was in what I've come to learn was a very strange film program because they paired us with art history most film programs these days seem to be paired with English yeah that's what I
0: was, I was so
1: so I feel like I got this interesting perspective where I was viewing film more in relation to painting and the plastic arts and not so much in relation to literature so Mm -hmm. I never I never necessarily put the storytelling always first um so that's why when Deleuze is going to speak to me about a taxonomy of images I'm like okay yeah I'm down for this let's do that Yeah, Yeah.
0: Um, totally alien to me Yeah, totally alien so
1: speaking of the speech act um (laughs) he's gonna he's gonna recapitulate for us he often does so we're gonna go back to silent cinema and we're gonna talk about what the sound was like in silent cinema and so speech in silent cinema is communicated through intertitles so it's something that is both visible and read it's part of the image and it's part of the scene the sound in silent films is like additional it's added on it's outside um And then when speech becomes, or when the films become talkative, or they become the talkie, that's the term Liz uses, I always thought talkie was kind of a silly term, but anyway, I digress, Uh, then we start to be able to read the image separately from speech but we also still see the speech as well as part of the image so it's still sensory motor just as the intertitles corresponded to action the new talking also corresponds to action so it's directed but there is also this element of conversation and i found his discussion of conversation really like fun because it's just like ah the power of conversation and the american comedies and like how it's all about conversing and who has the power in the conversation and who's who's sort of um i don't know what's the word i'm looking for uh subjected who's like in the weaker position
0: in the What examples did he give here for this?
1: Uh he talks about like Hawks's screwball comedies like uh bringing up baby and right, like right, uh right. yeah i've seen his that girl one. friday I, uh, I haven't
0: seen that. I've oh, seen his no, Girl, his up Girl Baby. Friday
1: is really good, but so is Bring Up Baby. They're both really what good. What
0: about, uh, like, Some Like It Hot?
1: Yeah, that'd be good, too. Like, the Capra films. Yeah, he. I think he mentions Capra. Maybe. maybe there, not. too. I don't. Mm-hmm. Memory's bad at this point. Um, but, yeah, so this talking sort of shows us that the image has the capability to be read, but we read it in relation to the conversation, um, and they're sort of complementary to one another. And then there's this next section on film music, which I really didn't understand. (laughs) Honestly, there's one part of this book that gets me, the film music section. I don't, I'll do my best. Um, So in uh, the movement image, film music can either provide an accompaniment or a counterpoint, so it can synthesize with the action in sort of a Hegelian way. Or it can testify to a certain outside force that underlies the image in, I guess, kind of a Nietzschean, Dionysian way? Sure. I've always found the whole music part of the birth of tragedy to
0: be somewhat impenetrable, I'm not gonna lie. Oh, really? Okay, that's too bad, because that's, like, the (laughs) biggest part of it. Is it? I I think so. It's the subtitle,
1: but I feel like most of the time he's like, representation and chaos, and you got one, you got the other...
0: For me, it always just comes back to music. I just, uh, when I think of Dionysian, I'm just thinking the music. I'm thinking the the like gorgon chant of like.
1: Oh, see, I'm thinking of like the chorus in like the the most literal like the Greek chorus who aren't really musical. Speaking, They're just like a character. Sure. Um, but yeah, that's totally that's totally fair, and actually probably works better here that there is that kind of musical force that can be summoned up to, like, yeah, work not necessarily with the image, but to be channeled by it and part of it underneath it. Um, and then, yeah, the... Whenever there's off-screen sound or off-screen speech, it's always part of what we're seeing in the movement image. Like, it's always um you know sound off screen implies a space where that sound came from in the movement image so in the time image sound and image are going to separate and so we're finally at son signs <laughs> <laughs> most of the things we've been talking about op signs we're finally at son signs right. <laughs> for the last 10 pages yeah any sound time. whatever um so what happens here is that images and sounds don't necessarily have anything to do with one another anymore. Um, and the Strobe-Huyer films, he just calls, he just refers to them as Strobe films, but they were collaborators and uh, they shared an equal part of the work. It was strobe um Jean-Marie Strobe and his wife daniel huye not not just one of them um their film too early too late to use an example in the first part of the film we see these french villages just images of these french villages like uh fields um towns squares things like that and the voiceover is reciting to us I think it's messages from French revolutionaries from the turn of the century. So that is the sound we hear is this um, Marxist revolutionary sort of um, speech. But we just see images of cities and fields. And the chronology doesn't add up. It's not like the image is being made to look like when this sound would have come from. So we're tasked with, what does the image mean? What do we make of these images? But also, what do we make of the sound? What does the sound mean? It's become sound for itself. It's become sound on its own. It's become any sound, whatever. Like, And if there's a relationship between them, if they form a whole, it's not a whole in which they both take part. It is a whole in which they both open onto and into one another and so are outside one another. So we get what he calls a stratigraphic image, that is to say, again, it's a question of depth. The image itself takes on a depth of meaning. And so there's this kind of, I guess, sort of spectral implication in these works that these spaces are sort of haunted, that there's something buried there something that we're not seeing it's not just arbitrary it's not like surreal it's very much a self-consciously political gesture that they're going after and so this shows us the the pure op sign and the pure son sign and how they sort of go together and he talks about how this could be television
0: Okay, yeah.
1: He's like, TV could do this. TV has the power to produce these images, but TV always just goes back to the most banal presentation. It's not going to do this.
0: Time is money.
1: Yeah. But when someone like Gadar is paid to make something for TV, he will bring all his crazy sound mixing techniques. He will bring his black frames. He will bring his... Um, style to television and show that television can communicate this way, that it doesn't have to be the other way. And he will he will bring this disjunction, this depth to television. And I think Deleuze really responds to Godard's TV works. Maybe just because Deleuze didn't like leaving his house. But... <laughs> But he has he has a separate essay on Godard's uh, six fois deux which was a television production um, that, to be honest, I have not read. But I know Deleuze was really into Godard's television stuff. Um, okay. So chapter 10. The Conclusion. <laughs> Did it have a title? It's just Conclusion. I think it's just Conclusion. Conclusion. Okay, so... Uh, chapter 10 is going to point outwards, but then um, end up in maybe a little bit of a disappointing place. I'm excited. Uh, so the first section, we finally get to talk about electronic images. <laughs> and I vastly prefer the concept of the electronic image to the digital image. Because electronic images... Encapsulate both television and computers, whether analog or digital, in a way that I think makes sense and in a way that keeps film separate. Electronic images are informational images. And Deleuze talks about the tyranny of information and the futility of information, that information is never going to do anything, and what we have is too much information. And this is going to be a big part of Deleuze's later politics when he writes the Postscript on Societies of Control. He's speaking about the glut of information and how contemporary society, writing in the late 1980s, early 1990s, is about who has access to what information. And largely our society has just become a hyper-accelerated version of this, I think. Anyway, it's still all about information. It's about who can buy information, who can sell information, the best ways to gather information, how to make everyone constantly produce information all the time. Like, it's never about really being creative. It's just about adding to this endless counting machine that's going to use it to sell you shampoo or give you a code to get a discount on um a food order or right something like that like information has completely um taken over our lives and like what is the crisis of fake news if not a crisis of quote-unquote bad information but all information it's the reason we can't tell the difference between fake news and real news is because it's just all at the same level of the informatic (laughs) like it's and that's that's where the real crisis lies is how do we produce something more powerful than information
0: yeah well in 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 Baudrillard's words he's like if we are to get at the heart of it we must renounce information itself yeah which okay. is the they're all saying the same shit but
1: yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah i think there's there's certainly a sympathy um there and what interests me is i think not to get all polemical but there is a real desire um to move away from the term film studies and move into either calling it film and media studies or calling it moving image studies. And I don't mean to offend you as a media studies person, but I don't think films are electronic images.
0: I don't think films belong in media studies. Yeah, Because I... From my experience, no one that I know in media studies is equipped to, as far as the experts that belong to the canon, are equipped to actually study film. They're prepared to study media, like, yeah. in very broad terms. Like, not... And what he gets to at the very end of this book is that cinema demands its own language. Like, yeah. it, it, it is its own language that... I don't think any kind of, like, um, broad, um, approach of, like, just clumping it up with other media can, can ever do it justice.
1: Yeah, and that's, that's definitely how I feel. So this is another part of the book that really speaks to me personally, is, for me, when we talk about TV and film, TV has its own history, and you can't separate the history of television from the history of advertising. Yeah. Um
0: and that's what many like uh media theorists that actually study television do it with the intent of really study studying yeah. advertising and like in television how are the audience turned into commodities themselves like how yeah. are the audience the ones that that you know are sold to but that's not what deleuze is interested in here he's not he's not interested mm. in how you know Uh, audiences are turned into automatons with the cinema. In fact, you know, he's opening up worlds with with, it, or hoping that cinema might open up worlds, which media studies people are not want. (laughs) And I'm being very productive in what I know. Generally, they're not want to think about what, you know, the cinema or what even television can open up. It's about how it forecloses possibility.
1: Yeah, and I think I think to me, television, a you can't consider it separately from the history of advertising, but B, even what it's become now, you can't separate what happens on Netflix from the history of digital distribution and entertainment. Yeah,
0: you just data. Like. Yeah,
1: it's it's these these shows that we binge watch. Some of them are great. Some of them are faux prestige some of them are awful it it's a various range but they're all just kind of information too like they're it takes a lot to make of an electronic image an image of thought really and it's hard to say what or if anything has achieved it i think it's achieved it at moments Mm -hmm. and I'd put video games also in the electronic image category. They're about inputs, and when he describes electronic screens as layering screens, as layering information over images and on top of images, it's like, that's what video games are. They're information layered over top yeah. of an image that corresponds to the information being presented. Um, and so it's very, it's very interesting to me that, like, okay, if we're going to think beyond cinema we have to dive into its relationship with the relationship of these mediums with information in a way that film isn't related yeah that if we want to we can speak about film in the sense of movement images and time images in terms of these autonomous images that these other forms of media these other electron images aren't they don't have that same autonomy and um, just to sort of point in two directions. The French film critic Serge dene who Deleuze talks about a bit, in the 1980s, he took up this project to start watching movies on television. So every night he'd watch a movie on a French television channel, like a classic film, or an older film, and he'd like pay attention to the commercials they showed, pay attention <laughs> to how it was cropped for TV, and be like so what changed because this is different it's not the movie as i saw it in the theater as i saw it on a print at the cinematech like something happened here something changed and then another example would be a more contemporary critic d.n rodowick who very much had a crisis with digital images and digital cinematography where he wondered if the time image could exist in digital cinematography or if this was truly an end of cinema with the loss of celluloid film that like if these images are digital images do they retain their autonomy that they do when they're projected because it's easy to see a projector as sort of an autonomous image yes it's mechanical and there's an apparatus there which operates it but the image coming out of it is all that's coming out of it it's just the image that's produced you know whereas digital images are plugged into computers they're sourced through all this information and they become electronic so like when it's not about light and exposure and things like that and it becomes about layering information over the image even in terms of like color grading which is a form of putting information into the image as part of the filmmaking process quote-unquote filmmaking process like is this still the time image anymore is this still capable of offering a time image and in his latest book he kind of was like i've found some but i'm still skeptical And so this really points towards a sort of thing that um, a lot of people in film studies don't like to think about, which is, is what we want to do even still possible? Or, um, like, how do we frame what we do? Because something that's always driven me nuts in the first year film classes I've TA'd is um, we'll have, like, our lecture hall where we screen the movie And the professor will say something like, make sure you show up to the screenings because this is a more authentic experience. And I just sit there and I think, no, it isn't. The speakers are at the front of the room. We're playing it on a DVD player. It's just blown up by an old projector that can't even do 1080p. Like, (laughs) this is i'm sorry this is not an authentic experience it's a completely electronic one like people watching it on their computers are not having a different experience than people watching in the lecture hall the only people who would have a different experience is if they went and watched a 35 or 16 millimeter print of the movie Mm -hmm. like and so much of film studies is devoted to these like close readings of films where we sort of pretend that it's always the same thing every time we watch it but it's it's not. It changes based on how we choose and where we choose to watch it. And so, like, I'm not saying that you have to see a movie in 35mm to claim you've really seen the movie. That's not what I'm saying. But I'm saying that there's an affective and autonomous component to film as film that changes when we begin to consume images electronically and it should call into question um our goals for film research
0: um that was a bit ranty (laughs) i mean that was a i think that was good
1: yeah so um the second uh second part of this last chapter is just a recapitulation of the signs of the time image so we have our chronosigns which are uh our visual sort of representations of time we have our uh new signs which is uh the new form of shock that we experience the irrational disjuncture or the irrational cut things like that and we have um lecto signs which are like images we read descriptions things like that and then of course he talks about the audiovisual split again, and op signs and son signs being sort of freed from their sensory motor thing. And then we get to the last section, where this wasn't about
0: film at all. (laughs) It was about about philosophy, really. Yeah, it
1: turns out that um, uh, the real question is not whether we can produce explanations for the cinema but what the cinema can do for thought and how it can change the way we think about certain things and so the real question we need to turn to is what is philosophy what is what is the autonomous quality of philosophy what does philosophy do what is philosophy's material because we've gone over the cinema's material it has these two images these images are made up of these signs it has all these different signs um but it's not necessarily about cinema the people who know about cinema are the people who make it (laughs) yeah and he says like something like psychoanalysis or linguistics are never going to be adequate to the cinema it's never going to be able to like explain all these things together in one neat little system it's not it's just not gonna happen and (laughs) i think the first time i read this last bit i got so mad because i was just kind of like how dare you how dare you talk so much about film have what are in many cases interesting insights into films and then at the end tell me... No, that's not what it was really about. <laughs> um, but then, you know, the more I kind of dealt with this book and I went through a big period of resistance where I was like, well, I can make these ideas about film. Like, you can say they're not about film, but I'll i will make them about film. That's what my MA thesis was. was like, I'm going to take this idea you have and I'm going to make it about film. Um... And then I've since come to realize that I think Deleuze is speaking from a place of, like, I don't want to tell you what to do. The cinema is perfect, as it is, as long as no one comes along and ruins it. Which could be argued has happened several dozen times since he wrote these books. But, (laughs) like, that is his thing, is he's trying to be like, I'm a philosopher, that's what I am and i think the cinema can help me articulate my philosophy and so i want to leave the cinema to the people who suc- who've succeeded at it who are the best at it i've given you dozens upon dozens of names of those people if you're interested like but i this is the question i'm trying to answer this is the question i'm obsessed with and so i'm a lot more softer on it but at the same time, you know, this, this whole journey that Deleuze has taken us on has been framed sort of as this conspiracy and struggle, this fall from movement into cliche, and this escape into thought, and the depths of thinking and its possibilities it's been almost like a science fiction story in a way. Um, just as a quick aside, if you ever get around to difference and repetition in one of the prefaces, he says philosophy should be like a science fiction and he quotes, um, Samuel Butler, or he references Samuel Butler's Erewhon. but doesn't matter. He's talking about Godard's Alphaville 100%, 100%. It's just a reference to Alphaville. I see it. Um, And so this is really Deleuze bringing his style to bear and he's produced this bizarre history taxonomy of what cinema is and what it can do and what it's up against in the end and, like, can it really save us? And I think what Deleuze comes down to is, well, it can help. But we need to figure out this question, what is philosophy? That's the thing that's going to that's the thing that's really going to help us that's the th- and it needs cinema to help us but it's really the thing mm-hmm. and i'm sure there's some people who are going to um and you'll know who i'm thinking of in particular who would just be like Philosophy's not going to save anyone philosophy right. is poison philosophy is always a way to control people like Um, But I think what Deleuze has tried to show is that there's another way of thinking philosophically. There's a way that positions itself to receive what exists in front of it, to believe in its possibility for transformation and to not impose. And I think it really is a kind of um, both uh, powerful sort of like, creative liberation but it's one that's not going to be finished it's going to keep asking questions Um, and this is really like uh, uh, I compared Deleuze's cinema books to a Jack Revet film Um, just to review he makes uh, movies that average around three hours in length he (laughs) makes very long films there's usually some kind of conspiracy in them um, and one of my favorite of his films that I watched on my birthday this year is called, uh, Selene and Julie Go Boating, um, which is about this woman who, uh, is sitting in the park one day when a magician runs past her and drops her scarf, so she tries to return it, and these two women sort of end up bonding together, and they discover this haunted house that's trapped in the past... And so both of them try and go into this house, and they end up caught in these horrible, tragic circumstances and then are spat out again afterwards. And then they eventually realize that it's up to them to sort of actively enter into the past under their own control and change what happened there and rescue this girl. It's very dramatic. It's hilarious. It's queer as hell. It's an amazing film. Funny, um god i just love it so much but the the way it ends is well they actually go boating (laughs) and then um it's reversed now the magician sees the girl from the beginning walk by and drop her scarf and goes to pick it up and chase her down so we've just come out the other side so with the cinema books we started off what is cinema what are our concepts what does it do and we did philosophy to try and explain cinema and now at the end what is philosophy (laughs) right let's go
0: chase that down and see what happens do we need to revert to cinema to to understand (laughs) that now its concepts will help (laughs) well shit
1: (laughs) yeah and that's that's the cinema (laughs) book
0: I think that was a pretty good way to conclude that. Uh, I like a big finish. I that was it. That was a big finish. Um, yeah. Anything else? Oh my gosh! I'll
1: plug my stuff one more time. Yeah. Uh, at thought and cinema on Twitter, T H O T. At cello Burke, uh, cello like the instrument B U R K E on Instagram. I'm blocked, but send me a request. I'll let you in. It'll be fine um you can look at pictures of my parents cat and uh i don't know maybe i'll put a selfie on there occasionally but those are all on twitter just follow me on twitter
0: um and i'll link those in yeah. the descriptions so yeah and uh
1: god who knows i think um my cineeroticism essay might end up getting published in the film studies journal of canada the canadian journal of film and media studies that's what it's called yeah so if you're interested uh if you follow me on twitter i'll Link to that when it's available. And yeah, and whenever it's it.
0: available, I'll put it on the on these episodes in the the last movement image ones. Yeah, I can, uh, I
1: can add this. So yeah, um, if people want to check out my work, it's not necessarily as uh, flashy as this stuff, but it's um, <laughs> similar. I write I write about films and uh, sort of aesthetics of indiscernibility. Um, and uh, a little bit of trans feminism sprinkled
0: in uh just for good measure yeah this was fun i'm i'm more appreciative that you came and explained this stuff to me uh than it was probably fun for you um <laughs> but yeah for those that made it this far thank you for listening uh and tune in next week for whatever else i have coming down the pipes <laughs> take care